Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone, and welcome to Raising Parents, the Parenting Science Insights podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Now, let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode. Now, it's a hard thing for any parent to see the effects bullying has on their child, their lack of enthusiasm to participate in social situations, or their fear of to even attend school. As a parent, you might be feeling shocked, worried, fearful, or defensive. Now, these are all completely normal reactions. On today's episode, we'll be taking a little bit talking a little bit more about bullying and the insight of the bully and of the bullied, as well as some practices you can adapt to prevent an escalated situation. To help answer some questions and guide us to understand more about this topic, um, is a psychotherapist as well as an author of two best-selling publications, as well as a parent herself, Dr. Stella O'Malley. Thank you so much for joining me on the show, Stella. Hi there. It's lovely to be on it. Now, when I was prepping for today's interview, I had to go and do a little Google search into the understanding of psychotherapy, because apparently it's completely different to what a normal therapist sort of looks into. Um, Do you mind talking a little bit more about what a psychotherapist is and how you got into it? Uh, Yeah, I'd be delighted to. Very few people do ask me that. Um, You know, an awful lot of people, and certainly myself before I trained as a psychotherapist, we um, we think it's just chatting with somebody else, but it's actually a very a very kind of penetrating process where you commit to attending and you commit maybe to paying, but certainly being there and turning up emotionally, not just turning up, if you follow me. And the therapist, it's the role of the therapist to ask kind of insightful questions and not only that, to spot patterns in the in the individual's behavior. So you might come in and you might talk about A, B and C and they might look very unrelated. If you're a good therapist, you can spot, oh, I can see an, a pattern, a pattern of behavior here or a pattern of fear or a pattern of, of, of emotional thoughts. And so it's our job to kind of relay that back to the individual who can then do with it what they please. And usually over a period of time, they start realizing, oh, my God, this is my you know, this is my fear of rejection catching up with me again. I can see it. Do you know what I mean? So so over time, they become their own therapist. And that's our job. Our job is to make ourselves ultimately defunct. So it's and, very um, Yeah, to teach the client to be their own therapist. And when they can start anticipating what I'm going to say, and they can say, I knew what you'd think, they're moving into, they could they can move beyond therapy and say goodbye to me. My job is done. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so it's very different to just like a normal therapist where you're just sort of having someone to vent to. You're not just like, there's actually something that you have to understand about the person as well. Yeah, you know, a, a lot of um, therapy has moved into ther- therapeutic support, 
while a psychotherapist offers a therapeutic process, which is what I just mm. described, while support is a much gentler process, but it's it's arguably not as valuable where you might ring the Samaritans or you might ring a phone line and they will make very nice noises of encouragement and mm, and yeah, and that's nice. But it's the difference of, you know, when you go to somebody and you're in deep distress and they make noises and they're sad and they're with you, but they haven't mm-hmm. got anything to offer really. Mm-hmm. And somebody who you go to and they will say, well, have you thought of this? And should we think of this? And how about that? And there's much more. You can sometimes not be up to it and think, oh, I haven't the energy for this, but you probably know it's it's better for you in the long term, really. You know what I mean? It's it takes more out of you, but it it, it gives more to you as well. Well, that's that sounds amazing. How how did you get into wanting to be a psychotherapist? Because it's not something that you just sort of potluck it and just pick it out of a whim. It's something that you no. really want to be into. I suppose I, I had I had a difficult childhood and so I was always interested in psychology. I wonder, was that by nature? I don't know, but certainly from a young age. I remember as a kid saying to my brother, I was about 15, and I said to my brother, maybe 16, that I wanted to be a psychologist. And he went, oh, you? Like, <laughs> he was really <laughs> And he, he said, I don't think he'd be sympathetic enough. And funnily enough, that did knock me. I did listen to him and I didn't. I didn't follow it for some years. And then when I was about 30, I was searching for a career and I went to an open night um, about counselling and psychotherapy. So I was clearly interested enough that I went to the open night. But as soon as I as soon as the guy started talking, I was like, this is it. This is what I'm looking for. And I had gone to lots of therapists in my 20s. I trailed from therapist to therapist. And I remember I used to think I could do better than this. I remember they'd ask me a question. I think. I could do better than this. Now, whether that was arrogant, I don't think it was. I think it was actually the very low quality therapy I was receiving. I'd say it was a tricky client. I'd say it wasn't easy. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, I could see that they were, I could see it going wrong even before I was trained. And then looking back when I got trained, I thought I was right. Yeah, I, I can see what they did and it was wrong. Now, I know that makes me sound awful, but it's the truth. No, it doesn't actually. It, actually, if you think that you can do better than most therapists, then that definitely go in. Uh, I'm pretty sure you proved that by now, like in well, your well, career. To be honest, I did think, well, I'll be better than them. So already I'm not as frightened as a lot of us when we're training. We're frightened to harm people. And because I had those experiences, and I'd had a few therapists, I was that little bit less frightened because I was like, I know, well, I'd be better than them. It was a low bar. <laughs> No, that that sounds absolutely an amazing way to start a career, an amazing time for you to be able to do it as well. Um, so before we get started into the topic, we like to start a little icebreaker, um, just a little bit more about what your interests are and so in the different areas. So when I say these keywords, just sort of say the first thing that comes to your mind. So uh-huh. how about your favorite <laughs> book? <laughs> Oh, the favorite book that jumps to my mind is Lying on the Couch by Irvin Yalom. And mm-hmm. I love that book. It's funny enough, it's written by a psychiatrist, but it's a novel. And okay. it's about um, other psych. Oh, it's a really funny, funny, funny book. And it's about a few psychiatrists and the different things that happen in their client work. And I just think, I just can't believe this isn't one of the most famous books in the world. It's that good. It's so funny and it's so good. I love it. 
I always love the idea of like wanting to hear what other like psychologists have actually dealt with in their career, <laughs> just sort of the insides of it. So that sounds like a perfect read for that. Yeah, it is. It's really, really good. Loads <laughs> of twists and turns as well. Okay, I'm going to add that to my list of books I have to read now. So it's getting long by now. <laughs> <laughs> How about your favorite movie? Oh, my favorite movie. My favorite movie. I've I've got a pretty um slapstick and my husband would consider fairly basic uh, sense of humor. I love Dumb and Dumber. I oh, yeah. love <laughs> Meet the Fockers. Is that the Meet the Parents? Meet the Parents. Probably Meet the Parents. I love that film. Oh, I've rewatched that so many times. You can never really watch it enough as well. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, I think that might be. I'm sure there's a few other films but that's the one that came to mind I do love a funny 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 film like no I'm I'm the same way my whole family are complete goofballs so I'll we just watch like it's white chicks or it's like something stupid that's just like <laughs> you barely have to pay attention to so I can yeah. agree with that <laughs> how about your favorite podcast oh my favorite podcast I've got a podcast of my own gender a wider lens which is my favorite podcast, but other people's podcasts. Let me think. Hmm. I don't know really. Trigonometry is good. Um. I don't. I oh, I like a Callan's Kicks. It's an Irish one, but it's a satire. I listen to that every week, so I put that down as my favorite. It's just a funny political satire. I got, didn't realize I was so into humor until this conversation. <laughs> Well, that's something you've realized about yourself now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Every day's a school day. <laughs> How about your famous role model? Role model. Wow. Huh. Maybe Bob Dylan. Yeah. Okay. I think Bob Dylan, yeah. He kind of stayed. I've loved him since I was a kid and... He's, he's withstood an awful lot of criticism. He's been really, really popular and he's been really, really unpopular. And he stays the same. He mm -hmm. just does what he needs to do. And I like that. He he just stays authentic. No, that's always, yeah. that's always a really good role model to have. Yeah. I love him. <laughs> so how about a favorite course that you've completed? Oh, that would probably be my first counselling and counselling and psychotherapy course. I did it with a woman who ended up becoming my friend, Fiona Hoban, and it was just the most enlightening experience. Now, I tell a lie because before I did my counselling and psychotherapy course, I did another course. It was a self-development course. And do you remember all that therapy I went to in my 20s and it didn't really help me? That first self-development course, and I don't know the name of the people who, who ran it, that really changed my life. And it wasn't that counselling. It was a course about self-development. And then mm -hmm. afterwards, I did a course in counselling with, with Fiona, who then became my friend. And it was life-changing, learning about how the mind works. It was really life-changing. Wow, that sounds like a really good course to get you started. Yeah, it was. <laughs> so going into the topic today, we're talking about bullying, talking about how we can prevent it, the different understanding, the different ways that it comes, comes about. Um, so to get started, what do you think parenting, what do you think is the definition of parenting? 
Well, I suppose parenting has become a verb these days and it, it never was before. So but in the la- previous generations, you were a parent, as in you had given birth to a child or you'd taken guardianship of a child. Nowadays, parenting as a verb has, has become loaded with, you know, behaving in a way that nurtures the child. And it's, it's a much more it's a much more oppressive frankly, category than being a parent. It's easy to be a parent. Parenting, you're always failing, frankly, these days. No, I I definitely agree with that. I feel especially um, like the way that it's changed, the way society has changed, like the different forms of family sort of interlude with the different ways of parenting as well. So I can definitely agree with that. Um. What do you think the position of a parent is in today's society? It's a very, very difficult position. I've traced this back. I wrote a book, Cottonwool Kids, in 2015. I released it. And I really traced back the kind of history of what the hell has happened to parenting. And so it's, it's quite traceable. Like, you know, in about 100 years ago, the first kind of parenting manuals arrived. And it was with the advent of psychology, which was about 150 years ago. And they started, you know, the first few books, they were hilarious. But basically, you know, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't love your child. You shouldn't talk to them. You should treat them basically like brats that needed to be tamed. And then it moved on. And Dr. Spock wrote, you know, the the book Baby and Child Care in the 1950s, 1960s. And he he was kind of trying to be helpful to parents. But it, it became an industry in around about the 80s and 90s and noughties. And it the very much the industry was basically you are a parent fool and you are going to harm your children. So you have to follow our advice to stop yourself from damaging your children. And it was a really um, a really horrible message to send parents, you know, very most you wouldn't say all, but like we're in the high 90s. Parents love their child and are more engaged with their child, more interested than their with, with their child than anybody else. And yet the professionalization of parenting has made it so that parents are looked down on and parents are told you're always doing it wrong. No matter what you're doing, you're either loving too much or you're loving too little. You're either too strict or you're too soft. You're too coddling. You're too har- harsh. Every single day parents feel that they're inadequate and they're failing. And it's it's not fair. And it, it has arose very directly as a result of, of consumer interest where they were making money on the back of telling parents that they were doing it wrong. And like I read all those books myself, like The Baby Whisperer really helped me. And lots of people love the attachment parenting books and Gina Ford. Some people like Gina Ford and stuff. There's lots of you could argue good advice in the middle of all these. And I write books myself and it's directed at parents. I would hope that the books I write are helpful to parents as opposed to undermining. But I do think that the undermining of parents has reached really, really distressing levels where where parents need to kind of regroup and push back. And I feel like they are, but it's it's a real issue. Why do you think that it's sort of changed in the way that it has done? I think it changed because of consumer interests. I think they realized that if we, you know, all advertising and marketing is based upon selling a lack to the person. And so that makes you feel that you lack a car, so you'll buy a car, then you lack a nice enough car. The same with hair products, you know, skin products, clothes. Your life will be better if you get this product. 
And so they realized kind of in and around the 80s in a big way, certainly the 90s, that if we sell this lack to parents, we're going to make huge money. And this might be baby monitors we're selling them or the latest kind of bottle or the latest feeding thing or books, films, kind of podcasts and all sorts of kind of content that will teach parents to be a better parent. Because I've worked with parents and teenagers and young people enough to know parents will go over cut glass to 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 for their children. And so if they have to slog through a book that tells them how terrible they are, they'll do it because they love their kids and they really will do it, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a horrible scene where the the marketing forces are selling parents the idea that they're not good enough. And the par- none of us are good enough. We're all human. And the parents buy it because they always want to be better because mm-hmm. they love their kids and they're trying to do best for the kids. You can never reach perfection. And if you do, that's damaging anyway. And so it's a, a really vicious circle that's really, really unfortunate. I No, I definitely see, see where it's coming from because especially with how, how much, like, as we get to adulthood and as um, teenagers become adults, they're realizing that, oh, your parents did this when you were younger. My parents never did this when they were like, they never let me stay out at a certain time, like past like 10 o'clock. And then a lot of kids, they're just like, well, that seems like child abuse. That seems like really bad. Why are you, why did you put up with that for so long? But it's like when kids realize a little bit older that they did that for a reason they had their own way of teaching that's may not be what like adults really want it's always what the it's in the best child's in the child's best interest at the start from when they're younger so i definitely believe that parents sort of get the always get the short end of the straw when it comes to that situations yeah, so do I. I think it's awful. And I think I think we need to do something about it because it doesn't help children either. Because, you know, the undermining of parents has led an awful lot of parents to be unsure of themselves and to kind of make kind of random decisions that goes against their instinct. We used to live in a world where mother knows best. Nobody says that anymore. Everybody presumes mm-hmm. the professionals know best and they don't and they don't care as much about your kids. So it's it's very distressing. So going on to a little bit more about bullying, um, as that's today's topic, how do you define bullying as a sort of general definition? Okay, yeah. um, Bullying is repeated aggression, repeated persistent aggression from somebody with more power. And it's, it's key that it is repeated. It's not just a fight. And if it's if it's two people who have equal levels of power, then it's conflict, which is not the same as bullying. Mm-hmm. But if it's one person who has more power than the other, then, uh, and that could be social power, it doesn't have to be kind of status power. There's lots of ways to have more power. So they might be more popular than the other person or something like that or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's when it's bullying. Somebody who's bigger and, you know, in the in the emotional sense um, and rougher, persistently being aggressive to somebody else. Mm-hmm. So what do you think the correlation between bullying and parenting would be? What, what do you mean? So is there, 
would there be sort of a correlation? And if so, what would the correlation be between bullying and parenting? Well, some parents can certainly be bullies. Um, that's certainly definitely an issue that I've, I've come across my, many times in my work. So there is a correlation there. As well as that, sometimes, you know, children can definitely bully their parents. That can be an issue. Certainly mm-hmm. parents have more power than children, so they, they wield a lot of power, so they can end up bullying their children. And sometimes they do it unknowingly. And they're doing it because they're a forceful personality, not because they're bad, but because they think this is the right way to be. It's, mm-hmm. it's very upsetting, but it's true. I think it's really interesting that like you talk about that children can also bully parents. And if we're talking about in a power sense, does that mean that the parent has sort of given up power to the child? Yeah. This happens more than people realize. What happens is that um, on some level, the parent feels inadequate. And that's very easily happening these days because of all the, you know, the reasons I listed earlier. And the child in some way a- ends up with the power in the household. This happens a lot more than than we realize. And so they're calling the shots and they're telling the parent that they're not good enough and that the parent needs to do A, B and C. And the parent, in a, in a bid to kind of make the child feel happier, they, they're doing it. And then a dynamic grows up where, where the child is literally bullying the parent. And um, it's, it's horrible because it's actually very bad for the child because the child feels uneasy and upset because they understand the natural order has been shook and they also realize that not only that they become frustrated with their parent because they want the parent to push back and the parent feels too weakened to be able to push back so it's it's a really horrible dynamic that can grow up Mm. so do you think the child like do children realize that they have more power a little bit sooner than the adults would yeah, children will spot a bit of power instinctively so fast, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so when the when the the when the parent um is weak, let's say on any given thing, whether it's technology or sweets or food or sleep or whatever, and they the parent the child realizes they'll get away with something, they'll go in so fast to take advantage. If this happens again and again and again, the dynamic gets upset. And the uh, child ends up um, kind of owning the place. And everybody feels uneasy. No, It doesn't suit anybody. Nobody feels happy with this. Mm. So is there a sort of difference between bullying and just pure manipulation, for example? Well, that's interesting. Yeah, so, some forms of uh, bullying can be manipulation. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you might just manipulate a situation and you're not bullying because you don't have more power and you're not doing it persistently. You know, mm-hmm. you just manipulate a person on a one-off. It's not very nice, but you're not bullying. Yeah. Or you could manipulate per- somebody all the time and you might have more power. And then, you know, but sometimes two friends would have equal sets of power. They're both manipulative. They're in a toxic relationship. It's not a bullying relationship. That's quite mm-hmm. common, but it's quite toxic and it's negative and it's not helping anybody. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely true. So what do you think the difference is between a perpetrator and a victim of bullying? Um, 
there's quite a lot of differences. Often the perpetrator of bullying um, is seeking power. This mm -hmm. is the bully and they want to get power and they they've figured out that a, a, a way to get power is to bully this particular person. And they realize they'll get away with it. Maybe they'll get away with it because that person doesn't have social status in the group. Maybe they'll get away with it because the teacher won't notice that particular person. There's a lot of reasons why people don't, why people get away with bullying. And in an almost instinctive manner, a very animalistic manner, the, the person who's looking for power actually spots who who they would get away with. I remember a very interesting study of paedophiles in prison in America. And they asked the paedophiles, who do you target? Is it the most prettiest kid? Is it the most um, beautiful kid? Or, you know, what what is it? Is, is there an actual kind of type? And they all answered the same. The, the, the results were astonishing. They said, we, we target the child who won't tell. And I would argue that if I looked at a group of 20 kids, within a day, I'd be able to say what would be the kid who doesn't tell, if you follow me. There's mm -hmm. certain types of kids, they're quieter, they're compliant, they're gentle, <laughs> they don't speak up. Not because they're not brave, not because they're not anything. It's just their way. They're just not the speaker up type. Mm -hmm. And those people like I, I kind of I, I went into it in quite a lot of detail in my book Bullyproof Kids and there's kind of like three main types of targets of bully bullying just like there's different types of perpetrators and the targets of bullying the classic type would be the type I've just described and you know I've got a child who'd be like this he's a little boy gentle compliant easygoing don't want to make trouble very very likable you know soft sweet natured. Now, if that person is targeted by a bully, they are unlikely to speak up. It's just mm -hmm. not their nature. They don't cause waves. They don't like waves and they'd rather peace. And um, another kid, you could say, you know, you could target that kid and they'll go straight away to their mother. They'll go straight away to their with their child. And often even, you know, uh, within the same family, paedophiles have, you know, targeted that child skipped that child and then on to that child. And time and again, it'll be for that reason. One <laughs> child would speak up. They just would. And they're a lot less likely to be bullied. But it's not the only type to be bullied because there's another type. There's, like I said, there's a few kind of classic types of, of targets of bullying. Another type would be the one who um, is kind of like the accidental target. And this is where something has happened. Maybe their name rhymes with something silly that is kind of, you know, being used or maybe um, something silly happened and they got a name and everybody laughed and it stuck. So kind of an accidental kind of run of circumstances make them a target and nobody sticks up for them in the very crucial moment. Mm -hmm. And that's very important. And um, sorry about that. There's been a noise there. Sorry. Um, yeah, but the, the, the accidental target, I remember one accidental target and he was a, a boy who, who was in the kind of dressing rooms in the swimming pool and the boys pulled down his shorts and then they called him a name and then the name stuck and it went on for years. And um, the, uh, the, the, the reason why he wasn't nipped in the bud was because he didn't tell his parents. Had, had he told his parents, they could have nipped it in the bud very fast. So the accidental target, it's all about how, how soon the adults can get involved. 
while with the with the gentle classic target i'd say though those children need adults to kind of keep an eye out for them and they need to learn um you know how to kind of have a, a gentle word in the in the ear they need to learn to kind of tell adults that something is going on but there's one more type which is the provocative target and i, I would be provocative target and so would my daughter so i, I have a lot of a lot of affection for them, but I also understand we're, we're, we're difficult people. We are the truth tellers. We're the type who speak up and we um, we cause waves. And that is fine if you're a truth teller. You know, it's fine, but it can annoy people. And once in a while, people push back at the truth tellers or the provocative targets and everybody piles on. And so it, it's a genuine issue that if you are a, a provocative person, you will get piled on every so often and it's it's really distressing when it happens. No, that sounds I feel like there's so many different characteristics that sort of you can sort of tell like you said, if you put it with the twenty kids, you can tell in a day who's gonna be who's gonna be what kind of personality and who's gonna be what kind of what type of target. Now, is it possible that a child can be both the perpetrator as well as the victim? Oh, God, yeah, very often. You know, an awful lot of bullies. There's lots of different types of bullies, no more than um, targets of bullying. And um, some bullies, they are the target and the perpetrator. A lot of bullies are the target and the perpetrator. So they might be getting bullied by their brother at home all the time for the last seven years. And a sibling bullying is a huge issue. It really is. It's understated, but it's a huge, huge issue. And um, they go into school and the very nasty behavior that they have had experience of is what they bestow on others. They've learned basically negative reactions. They've learned this kind of idea of eat or be eaten. They've learned it's all about power. They've kind of learned a very dysfunctional relationship with the world. They either think you're either winning or losing. And so they try to win. it's, It's really unfortunate and it's really, really common. And it's mm-hmm. difficult to unpick because they they move so seamlessly from poor me into kind of um, uh, being a, a spiteful bully that, mm-hmm. you know, you, you as an adult can think, what is going on here? It's very, very difficult to deal with. So does you think that the home, like home situation can turn a, a child into a bully and as well as dealing it with a vic- being a victim at home? Yeah, they could. And when that happens, if your child has been accused of bullying, it's a great gift to, to your child to to not immediately go on the defensive and say, it's not my child. That didn't happen. No, no, no. He's a, he's an angel. He'd never do that. It's much nicer and kinder to listen to the stories mm-hmm. and to kind of go quiet, ask questions kind of assess the situation and figure out what could be the dynamic. And maybe it's not true. Maybe it wasn't your child and maybe it's not. Because very often, one thing I really learned through my book, Bullyproof Kids, with the research and also like the aftermath of the book coming out, was bullying is often complicated. And often what is the first story is not actually the story. Mm-hmm. And there can be layers. It's like an onion. There can be layers and layers and where you end up is nowhere where you began. And so as a parent, if your child has been accused of bullying, you'd really need to interact with 
what's going on between the siblings. And if, you know, often parents say they hate each other. And that's where you need to kind of try and make kind of some sort of teaming with the siblings so that they they have to work together. So something along the lines of if you two can be nice to each other, we'll go out for pizza. But if you can't, we won't. And so it's within their interests to learn to get along. Mm-hmm. And you do a lot of things, big, big kind of big um, treats in a bid to continuously kind of bring them together mm-hmm. as opposed to allowing them constantly fighting. I think some parents feel it's just almost part of nature. They're fighting. They've always fought. There we go. We're just going to give up. And I'm like, no, nah, you can you can you can cultivate more positive relationships, you know. Mm. So why do you think that it's such a big thing that siblings sort of just don't get along or siblings fight? Um, very often, God's a human nature, very often, like we, we humans, we, we, we live in a state of anxiety on some level very, very often. Am I good enough? Does my mother love me? Does she love him more than me? Mm-hmm. Same goes for my father. Am I good enough? You know, we, we, we're constantly wrestling with those thoughts and those thoughts are what made us different from dogs and cats and horses, if you follow me, and all the other animals that we are, have this kind of consciousness of who we are and how we're impacting. So it has been the beauty of being a human. There's some We've created great literature and art and music and all sorts of things as a result of it. But it does mean we live in a lot of angst. And mm-hmm. when... Therefore, that's our natural habitat, you could argue. Now, (laughs) when we come to consciousness, literally from like zero to four or whatever, we're learning who the world is and whether whether the world, whether it's all about us or not. And then we realize we have to share our parents love with that other person who's actually bigger than you (laughs) and has taken your toy. So it's very, very, very natural for mm-hmm. conflict to arise between siblings. And it can be very good for them because you learn how to deal with humans. You learn how to deal with limitations and and, and relationships. So that's all fine. But uh, the problem is, is when it turns hostile and negative in a chronic way and the parents, rather than realising, I need to sort out this, they instead just think, ah, yeah, they hate each other, such as like, as if this is natural, rather than go, no, 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 that's not natural. Mm-hmm. So what do you think are the impacts of bullying on a child's sort of health and development as they get older? What do you think? We'll say that. What are the impacts that bullying has on a child's sort of health and development for when they get older? Um, it's devastating. It's absolutely crippling. If if you've been bullied, the amount, one of the reasons why I wrote my book, Bully Proof Kids, was because so many people came into my practice and said, uh, you know, I'd say to them something like, when did you first feel ill at ease? When did you first feel, you know, unhappy in a larger sense? And often they would say, when I first got bullied. It leaves a very, very, very long shadow on somebody's life. It makes people feel that they've been judged, evaluated and deemed not good enough. And it's pretty devastating to feel that. Mm -hmm. And the thing about bullying is it's public. And in a way, if you look at society, society has operated by approval and shame for thousands of years, more so than prison and laws. Approval and shame is what keeps society on most levels Mm 
keeps us behaving well and not robbing our friends when we can and doing all the other things. It keeps us behaving in a, in a civilised manner. Mm-hmm. And um, um, so it, it does have a function. But when a person is bullied, the, the tribe has effectively shunned them because bullying means it's public. Generally, you know, on some level, somebody has judged mm-hmm. them and deemed them not to be good enough. And they can feel their survivor instinct is often awoken because they feel, oh, my God, I'm 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 not good enough for the tribe. It's a very, very, very deep feeling of terror is awoken. And it, it goes very, very deep in, in some people. Horrible. It's a horrible experience. So when it comes, I think it's such a big thing when especially the different types of bullying that social media has now sort of developed into and it's now turned into a whole other type of um, bullying that comes in. What are some of other specific types of bullying that parents should be aware of? Yeah, there's there's a few different types. There's the cry bully is is a real issue. A lot of teachers spoke to me and um around my bullying book and the cry bully is 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 one it's very deceptive. Remember I said about bullying being very complicated. It really is. I know I'm really saying it, but it really is. And the cry bully basically says that everybody is bullying them, but they actually have the most power in the room. And so they're wielding power by by um, saying that other people are bullies. Mm-hmm. And so they're creating an awful lot of wreckage in other people's lives. And it, it's very distressing for everybody and nobody quite knows what's happening. And when one thing that can be very handy for a person, to, for a teacher or an adult or a therapist or a mother is to think, who has the most power in this situation? Rather than what's the worst deed that's happened? Who mm-hmm. actually, it could be the person who's crying, actually has the most power. So it's, it's, it's because tears can be very silencing. It's very hard to know what's going on with, with it. But sometimes people are, are declaring that everybody else is a bully and they have all the power. It's, it's, it's deceptively common, that mm-hmm. situation. And teachers in particular have found this is a growing issue. People have realized Saying somebody else is a bully gives you all the power. Everybody's listening to you. Because it's the person that speaks up, I guess. It's the person that wants to start, wants to make it known that this is the bully. This is the person that's changing it away. So how do you know that, for example, if you're setting up a child and you're having a um, like sort of conversation with the teacher on that person is bullying how do you know that they're bullying or they're just not, they're just sort of making fun of or they're just joking oh, around? Yeah. yeah, well, remember I said it was persistent aggression from somebody with more power. You know, for some people, fun, you know, just making fun of somebody, it's fine. It's funny. The big rule of thumb there is if you can turn the tables, if you can make fun of, of them back, mm-hmm. then it's genuine fun. Okay. If there's a, if it's only going one way and the dynamic is we make fun of you and you don't mm-hmm. dare make fun of us, well, then that's bullying. You know what I mean? So if yeah. it can be both ways, if you can turn it back on them and say something funny and you can try it and you'd, mm-hmm. you'd know very quickly, like that's no, no, they're not, they're not willing for that, you know? 
Yeah. Because I think like, especially when the whole idea that humor is subjective and everyone sort of takes humor differently, like what you say, it could be like, so how would you specifically know that, okay, what sort of the extent of bullying that sort of takes it a bit too far? Yeah, I think that's a really key point that humor is subjective. So one person might say, I don't want to make fun of them back. I don't think any of this is funny. They think it's funny. I just think it's dreadful. Everything about it is dreadful. And so Mm -hmm. if the person you're making fun of isn't laughing, well, then you need to stop. They don't find Mm -hmm. it funny. You might find it hilarious. And as we said earlier on, I find lots of things hilarious. So I I really enjoy humor. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes the likes of me would need to realize, just shut it. They don't find it funny and stop inflicting your humor on them. (laughs) You know, and sometimes remember I talked about, you know, the different types of bullies and the different types of 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 targets. Some bullies are almost accidental bullies, just like some targets are accidental targets. They think something is hilarious and they're bored and they like fun. And so they keep on having a laugh, not having the empathy or haven't even thought of the other person and not realizing that the other person is not finding it funny and is actually pretty devastated. Mm-hmm. And those bullies are easy enough to work with because those bullies generally, once you explain to them, you have devastated that child, you're really hurting them. They stop and they go, oh, I, I thought I was just having fun. I remember when I was a kid, I was about 10 and um, we had a sub teacher, you know, one of those like they, they came in because the other teacher yeah. was sick. Yeah. And I thought I was having great crack. I thought it was great fun. I don't know what I was doing, but I certainly thought I was having great fun in the classroom with this <laughs> sub teacher. And she must have rang my mom's house because my sister said to me, your teacher rang and, you know, you're, she's really upset. And it was shocking to me. I had no idea that I'd actually really upset the teacher. And I stopped. It was like I was like I literally didn't realize what was going on. So when the bully is is somebody who's just having a laugh and they don't actually realize it, that you can work with them. Well, if they're a power driven bully, you tell the wrong person you're devastating them. They will be awoken. They will think, oh, great. You know, there's blood in the water. I, you know what I mean? That they they'll follow the scent. So um, it, it you have to be very careful. You have to figure out what's driving the bully. Are they just bored and having a laugh or are they cruel and driven by seeking power? Mm-hmm. Because there's a big difference. So do you think that gender is a very big difference in terms of the extent of bullying as well? Yeah, they often say that, you know, the impact of testosterone and the impact of estrogen can impact because they often say with testosterone, it's much more um, straight. So they it's much more physical. It's much more aggressive, much more mm-hmm. like now these are generalizations, but they're quite noticeable generalizations mm-hmm. that testosterone means men are more likely or anybody with testosterone is more likely to get into a fist fight, to get into a physical altercation, to get to hit somebody, to, to push them. Yeah. And not so with estrogen. Oestrogen is more likely to try to ostracize somebody because oestrogen often seeks bonding. Um, And so the way you would bully somebody in an oestrogen way would be to stop them from bonding with others, which Mm -hmm. frankly is classic teenage girl behavior. (laughs) 
like, yeah. get her out of the fold, <laughs> get her into the fold, get her out, her in. And you just, when you realize how much estrogen is influenced by the bonding and testosterone is influenced by the kind of competitive, I will beat you. Testosterone is very hierarchical. Who's stronger? Bang, bang, bang. You know what I mean? While estrogen mm-hmm. is about who's in the fold, who isn't. So, yeah, I, I think you can make quite significant generalizations. Not always, but mm-hmm. you, it is noticeable. Okay. So going through some practices to sort of prevent bullying in children, do you have any that can sort of prevent sort of the the extent that a, a child would become a bully? Yeah. If you have a child who's who's very power-driven, you can spot that they are power-driven and realise that they do need a sense of power. Now, people who are very power-driven can end up in, in great roles like, you know, Mahatma Gandhi or, or, or Nelson Mandela or, you know, Barack Obama or our own president in Ireland, President Higgins, he's a poet, but you don't become a president without having quite a significant power need. You know, it doesn't happen accidentally, even though he's a very gentle philosophical poet. And um, so you need to realize that you need to harness this power, make sure that they're aware of it and make sure that they're aware that this can become uh, destructive if they don't watch if they don't wield it well people who are driven by power need to be taught empathy they need to be taught to care about other people and if they don't you can teach some levels of empathy not they might be extraordinary but you can teach some levels of an ability to put themselves in other people's shoes so that they realize you know you're hurting that person and so some children might need to be taught that that bit more because they're mad about power and they don't care who they're walking over because they want to win Mm. So how would you sort of put that sort of need to power, that driven power that some children have, how would you put it in sort of a positive way for a child to sort of express themselves? Um, Towards leadership, if they can, and empathic, I would give them a lot of role modeling around good leaders and bad leaders. Tell them about Stalin and Hitler. Tell them about Chairman Mao and then tell them about the great leaders of the world and what was the difference between one leader and the other. And then mm-hmm. spot it in shops and in, in cafes. Say, look, he's he's a great boss. Do you see the way he's caring for everybody? And then did you see that guy in the shop? He seems to be a very mean boss. Everybody seems to be in bad form. And so you're constantly aware that your child wants to be a leader and needs to be taught how to behave in a way that would be kindly and benevolent. Mm-hmm. Um, and is aware there's a concept of a good leader and a bad leader from a very young age. Okay. And now sort of contrast this, what are some of the practices that parents can adopt in helping child children who have been bullied? What are the what? What are some Sorry? of the practices that parents yeah. can adopt in helping a child that has been bullied? Oh, there's so many things. It's really hard. I find it's very, very devastating for the parents when a child has been bullied. They feel like they haven't kept their family safe. They feel like they've failed as a parent. So often the parents feel more distressed, not always, but sometimes more distressed than the child. So in a way, I sometimes say the parent might need support themselves 
and they're often very keen to get the child into therapy. And I'm like, sometimes the child just feels like, oh, my God, I was bullied for not being good enough. And now I'm being sent to therapy because I'm not being. And sometimes it's not appropriate to send the child to therapy. Sometimes they just need a steady ground and loving parents and things back to normal. But the parent might need some therapy to kind of recover from what just happened because the family was so badly attacked through the, the bullying of that child. So that's one thing just to be aware of. You as a parent might be more shook than you are really countenancing. Then what you can do for your child when you've looked after yourself is it's a long process of continuous kind of um, kind of teaching the child that they're good enough. It's a long process of teaching the child about group dynamics and how it wasn't a case that there was anything wrong with them, but it was a case of a bully who was roaming around and saw a chance, just like an animal in a, in a, in a zoo and, you know, another animal getting in and the animal grabbing them, that it's quite an animalistic kind of instinct in. Mm -hmm. And it can be really helpful. I've worked with an awful lot of people who've been bullied. It can be really helpful when you explain to them concepts like, you know, the passive target, the gentle target, you know, the provocative target. They feel better because they realize, oh, this is a universal issue. Yeah, this happens all the time. The more they realize that this is a thing that happens in groups of people and it happens and has always happened. And not only that, it happens in 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 all sorts of kind of cultures. Then they realize this wasn't about me. This was about that bully seeking power and he got it. And that's how mm -hmm. he got it. Mm -hmm. And so the more you can over time teach the child about what actually happened is actually very helpful for the kid, even though an awful lot of parents feel that they should shy away from it and talk about it because it was so upsetting. It's not true. Often the, 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 the child feels nobody's talking about it because I failed rather than nobody's talking about it for any other reason. So I would be very much uh, uh, talk about it. not all the time, but make sure your child over time comes to realize what happened. What was the dynamic? And if you as a parent don't know, it would be worth having to think about that. Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting because um, growing up, my sister was like sort of dealing with bullies and to a point where we had to talk to the school and things like that. And then I think I remember all the teachers said that they didn't want to rock the boat in the situation. They didn't want to be on either side of the situation, didn't want to cause any ruckus. So it's how do you sort of bring it up with the school in order for them to sort of take it as an issue? Mm. Um, I'm, I'm really into this concept Parents need to realize that uh, it's their job to advocate for their parents, for their children. Sometimes the child is gentle and compliant and so is the parent and the parent really doesn't want to. And one of the reasons why they were bullied was because they were that gentle type and their parents were that gentle type. And mm -hmm. so sometimes and more often than you might think, the parent got bullied as a child, then the child gets bullied and the parent is like, I, I don't know what to do in the face of this. So that can happen. What parents really need to be is to be a polite nuisance in the school. And that means you go up and you make your complaint and you say, and I'll be back in two weeks to find out. And they can say, no need. And you could say, oh, no, 
I will be back. I want to make sure that this is nipped in the bud and you're polite all the time, but you're just as soon as they see your face, they know exactly what you're coming about. And they're like, oh, my God, she's coming again. And you're emailing and you're always polite. You're a polite nuisance, but you do not let it go so that they realize you're not letting it go that there is an issue in that classroom and they're not going to get rid of you until they get rid of the issue. And then then you can kind of get somewhere with the class. Because schools, in fairness, they are, it's, it's, you know, there's a saying, you know, the squeaky pig gets the food and you've got to be the squeaky pig who's just, uh, 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 you know what I mean? And that takes an awful lot of energy and it's frankly exhausting because the parent doesn't want to think about it. The parent wants to believe that it's all over. They want to minimise it because they just don't want to think that this is happening. The child, in their part, wants it all to go away and constantly in a childlike kind of magical thinking kind of way says, oh yeah, it's better now, it's better now. It's not getting better, but they keep on thinking it's getting better because they're hoping it's getting better and everybody can collude with each other that it's getting better when it isn't. And so it has, everybody has to kind of be really pretty relentless about what's going on. And in a way, you know, the parent has to be the most relentless and forensic and gentle about asking the child, because if you ask the child and you lose it, you start crying or you start getting shouting or depressed or I'm going to kill that kid, the other kid, you know, the bully. Mm-hmm. The other, your, your child who's being bullied can just shut up because they can think it, it upset, upset mommy so much. I'm, I'm just not going to tell her again. Uh, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. It's got better, you know, because they know how she's going to ball cry and, yeah. you know, it's, it's not going to help. So, it, it, you know, Winston Churchill gave the, that great line. Sometimes it's not enough to do our best. Sometimes we have to do what's required. And I think with bullying, this is what we have to do. We have to do what's required. And it is really difficult, really mm-hmm. difficult. I do think some schools are worse than others. And sometimes it's not... Um, schools are not handling it they're minimizing it that's what they generally do they minimize it say ah it's just rough and tumble nothing to see here ah she's a nice kid really she was just Mm -hmm. a bit out of hand that day they minimize it and minimize it and they make the parents and the other and the child who's been bullied feel a bit hysterical and a bit over the top and a bit of a moan and so it's very 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 hard to keep your sense of self when you're being kind of just chipped away as being a bit over the top. I do have a kind of a a rule of thumb that sometimes, you know, you have to leave the school. And one of the reasons why you should leave the school is is because the school aren't helping in any way. They're just not, they're not engaging with any sort of process. Mm -hmm. And the other reason would be if uh, the the children have dehumanised your child. Once you've got into dehumanisation, it's kind of, you're on lost kind of land, you know. Yeah. So do you think that like, do most schools have sort of a bullying like prevention plan or is it just sort of something that they deal with case by case? Yeah, most most schools have a bullying policy and (laughs) now there's something that parents can use to kind of make the point that this cannot happen. It's not something I really get really exercised by because the schools have them as a form of admin. And I, I I often find that I meet parents and they're really upset and they're 
They're combing their way through the school policy to see what they're going to get the child at. And it's like they think they're going into court. And I'm like, you you don't need a lawyer here. You don't. What you need is people to be on your side and to work with you. You know, you don't you don't have any sort of Judge Judy saying you to the gallows. So what you need is the teacher and the and the principal to realize what's going on. And it's not a case of Section four, you know, subsection A. It's a case of you holding yourself together enough so that you can explain what has happened. And it's often very complicated to explain that. Mm -hmm. So you have to be kind. You might be a gibbering wreck, understandably, because you're so angry about what's happened. And like I say, I'm I'm not massively. I don't find policies help people all that much. They might sometimes, but not. maybe in very severe cases they can they can. But you're better off working with the humans on that other on on another point around that. Um, anti-bullying programs have been shown often to increase bullying in schools because. <laughs> Um, it's terrible, but it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, the research shows this. It basically brings in an awareness into 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 the situation, and the the, the kind of power driven children kind of get ideas and stuff. So you know, we have to be careful with the way we bring in these kind of well meaning policies. They don't always work. Yeah. No. Exactly. I think I think especially if you talk about it in certain ages, I think it brings more of a, oh, I can act like this against this student and then they'll be able to do this or they'll be able to give me the ball. Um, so, yeah, it's a very, I think it depends on the age of what ages they sort of bring in those policies and bring in those talks as well. Because I got them from my school at a very, really young age. And I think it just oh, yeah. sort of brought the idea. I think I got it probably in like the fourth or fifth, fourth or fifth grade so I was probably only about just reaching 10 or 11 and it was still like even then it was still really young for a lot of the kids especially their mindset is just just yeah. starting primary school just starting all those right. ages so it's it's I, insane well, it, no, well it's a very good point to raise um we don't teach you know Hamlet or Shakespeare to to seven-year-olds for a reason because if you try to teach a very complex concept to a child, they'll half understand it, but they'll kind of mangle it. They won't get it right. No. They'll have a half bit version of what's going on and uh, they'll run with it and they'll say, oh, yeah, 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 I, I get that. <laughs> they have not got it and they've got a version of it and it's not the accurate, correct version. There's a reason why we don't teach children complex concepts because they're not emotionally mature enough to understand them. Now, there is an issue, I would argue, that, you know, uh, we are bringing in complex concepts and programs and, you know, things like this, like you described, into classrooms and kids aren't getting it and they're they're running with the ball the completely wrong way. <laughs> it's like, no, that's not what we meant at all. So it's... it's it's well-meaning, but it's not working. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's pretty frightening, if you ask me. It, re- it really is, because I've just seen it work so badly that you just think, oh, my God, we have to go back to the drawing board. This is completely off, completely. No, I'm exactly the same way. I feel like when it comes to the standard age set, it's very different to, like, emotional age set. 
and they always think, okay, you're about 12 now. You can talk about all this stuff when it's like, literally you still act like a probably nine or 10 year old. So it's a very different, it's a very complex um, sort of understanding. And not only that, it's, it's, it's kind of hilarious, like with, with puberty and the differences, you know, generalizing, but generally girls go through puberty about two years before boys and the difference in the complexity of an 11-year-old girl and an 11-year-old boy and their emotional kind of sophistication is phenomenal sometimes. Like I saw it with my own two children, like my, my daughter's about 20 months older than my son. And at one point, it was like she was a decade older. <laughs> she was so far ahead. Now he's catching up. But like, oh my God, you can really see like very different way of being. Now you put those two in the same kind of group and it would be like huge, huge differences. Yeah, so exactly. it, 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 it's, it's a real issue. <laughs> it's, it's just very interesting to me how they sort of classify what your age range should be and what your age range is. So it's an always interesting to see kids and how they act at different age groups and how similar they are in some ages. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. <laughs> so going on to the next segment, which is sort of the practice and habits. Um, what's a practice that you sort of put into place in your own parenting that sort of prevents your child from being from bullying, such as either the perpetrator or a victim? I suppose the big thing that I've done in um, my own kids tried to, and none of us have it right and everybody is fallible and we, we make mistakes all the time, is I do try and uh, teach my children empathy and the ability to think about other people and how, uh, how other people are managing um, and I, I do think, thankfully, that they have learned the ability to just consider other people's emotions. And th that kind of should be enough, really, if you follow me, because once somebody can empathize with somebody else, they're less likely really to 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 kind of uh, walk all over them cruelly because they kind of know what it's like to be that person. Mm -hmm. What do you find there are some challenges when you're going through this practice with them um yeah I suppose um it can be much easier to teach one child empathy than another with one child they can just get it and with another child just the way we are some people are engineers some people are therapists you know what I mean I'm not sure why but definitely because yeah. I've known worked with kids you know and I've tried to teach them how the other kid would care and they'd be like, yeah, nah. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, right, okay. <laughs> so yeah. there, there's, no, there's no doubt that it doesn't come as easy to some people as others. And that can be hard. There's no, there's no doubt about it. That can be hard, you know? No, and yeah. it just means you're just teaching them. It's like one person is naturally sporty and somebody else isn't. And the person who has a natural insight into empathy, they get it and you're helping them and they're kind of easy to teach. And then somebody else, it's like you're trying to teach that person and they just don't know how to play football. And they're like, oh, but yeah. you can eventually with patience teach them a little bit of how to kick the ball, just a little bit. And they'll always hit it too hard and stuff like that. But they're, <laughs> they're kind of getting there. 
Um, that's what you're doing with, with the equivalent with empathy. It just doesn't come naturally to some of them. No, it's exactly, I think it's exactly how it is with my sister and I. For me, I love, I am so good to people. Like I learn it so easily. I get along with people. My sister, on the other hand, um, she she's in her 20s now, but she's just very, it's very, she's almost self-absorbed in a way. Like I can, so she's just, she doesn't, you have to think, she has to think twice about, okay, if I'm doing this, will it hurt this person? It doesn't come Mm -hmm. naturally to her. And it's very interesting. I'm like her guilty conscience. I always guilt her into being a little bit kinder to people. So (laughs) and it's always like that. Yeah. The interesting thing, it just doesn't come naturally to them. And then when you point it out to them, they're like, oh, Oh, okay, it's 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 totally news to them. So yeah. you realise it wasn't nastiness because they're like, oh, I, n- I never thought of that. And you're like, yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. for somebody like you or I, where it comes so instinctively, like I say, it's almost like the same as one person being able to kick the ball and somebody else just firing it madly yeah. in another direction. Like it very does, it does really seem to be very natural to some people and very unnatural to others. But if you've got power, you know, driving through that same kid without empathy, you've got a kid with very little natural empathy and a very high level for power, seeking power. You've got the ingredients of a bully (laughs) with that, with that too. And so that kid needs to be taught, what's your power, good leader, what's a good leader, what's a bad leader, how does that person feel? And every interaction as you're growing up, did you see his face? Did you see he looked very hurt? Did you see her? You know, and you're teaching them how to read body language and always kind of like teaching them, you know, these things that they need to be aware of so that they can be decent people. You know, Mm -hmm. there's an interesting book. I can't think of the guy's name and it was called The Psychopath Inside. And he um, he realized he was a, a neuroscientist and he was doing um, uh, brain imaging of brains. And he was also had a kind of brain images of his own family because he was looking at the kind of uh, the likelihood of Alzheimer's in his own family. So he had two kind of and he mixed up the psychopaths with his family. And he realized anyway, long story short, he realized there was a psychopath, the brain of a psychopath in his family. Then he realized it was himself. And like a true psychopath, he wrote a book about it. Okay. <laughs> and what he what he what he came up to was a very interesting book. And he said his mother spotted that combination in him, that cold, competitive, power-driven streak mm-hmm. with the lack of empathy. And she always taught him again and again and again how to be better and kind and think of others. And he ended up becoming a neuroscientist. You know what I mean? So he 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 yeah, she she were she wow. she spotted it in him. And when yeah. he told it's very interesting, it's a really good book. When he told his sisters, they went, Yeah. <laughs> they went, That's <laughs> what I think, oh, yeah, that makes like, sense now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They were like, all right, yeah. They were <laughs> no as shocked as he was. Oh wow. <laughs> oh, that's very interesting. I'm gonna add that another list of things to read now because that sounds like something definitely yeah. up my alley. <laughs> Yeah, it's really good. So how do you think sort of you teaching your kids empathy has impacted your parenting as well as your own perception of life? Um, I think it, as a psychotherapist, probably my best gift, well, I'd say definitely the best gift I can give clients is, is empathy 
that I, I seem to have it naturally mm-hmm. and a lot of it. And I, 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 I think it's a gift to give somebody mm-hmm. the kind of the, um, the ability to uh, understand them and understand how the, they might feel and be able to communicate that you do understand them. So I suppose it's a very big part of my life, empathy. But I think it's very, very, very difficult as a parent to do it because I think when you try to do it, it's easy to do it as a therapist, you know, that you're there and you're, you're, that's your job. When you try to do it with your children, they're like, oh, don't be trying to psychotherapist me. <laughs> and it doesn't work as well. You know what I mean? It's, it feels too probing. Mm-hmm. It feels too intrusive. So if I can guess what my daughter is feeling, she feels a bit too, it's too close and she feels a bit too, what's the word? Smothered? No, Oh, yeah. 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 Too smothered because it's like I'm I'm all over her. I can see how she's feeling. And (laughs) it's too much. It's too intense. And so it's it's tricky enough as a parent, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, So now we're going to go into questions from audience and just some of the questions that they've sent over to us over the since we've um, shared it out. So the first one is, should parents be held accountable for their child's bullying behavior? Hmm. Probably to a point, yes. Certainly Mm -hmm. when they're young. When they're young, under 12, I think parents should be really, really brought into the occasion. And so should teachers and so should everybody, because you can really make a big difference. You can be all over children when they're under 12, like or under when they're still in junior school on some level. You can be all over it. And, you know, every one of the adults should be held to account. The teachers should be able to stop it. The parents should be able to stop it. The parents of the bully should be mostly able to stop it. Everybody can really make a difference. When you're getting into the teenage years, parents have a lot less control over their children and their ability to stop it mm-hmm. is, is significantly reduced. So should they be held accountable? Yeah, if you want to punish the parent of a 16-year-old bully for producing such a rotten person, you could. <laughs> but will it be productive and will it be helpful? I'm not madly sure it would, because if if it's a power driven bully who's just driven by power, if his parents are getting uh, punished for his behavior, he's thinking I'm getting away with it. They're just going to bully. They're just going to get out. You know, give yeah. that information to the wrong bully and they'll just think, yeah, winning all over the place. Do you know? So I would I it, it would depend when they're teenagers. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point. Teenagers really have a mind of their own at some point. So whatever actions they do is probably pretty much theirs. <laughs> Up until 12, you have loads of uh, power over your children. After that, I hope your job is done because yeah. <laughs> all you've got really from then on is role modeling. You don't have a lot more to say. Uh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so what are some of the signs of bullying and how should parents deal with bullying in children and adolescents? One of the signs that your child, one of the most common signs that your child is being bullied is that their talk, their self-talk becomes very negative. 
So they say real mean things to themselves. They say, I hate myself or I'm always doing it wrong. And they have this harsh, spiteful way of talking, not only to themselves, but to other people. It's a harsh, mean kind of way of talking to themselves and other people. And that's a real sign that something toxic is happening. They're learning a way of speaking that really is. It's a sign that they could be a bully and it's a sign that they could be bullied. Mm-hmm. Is this kind of toxic, destructive way of speaking. So that's that's a big sign. Classically, what were the signs of bullying was, you know, destroyed lunches, broken kind of pens, broken, you know, copy books and and phones would be, uh, you know, broken phones and things like that. And um, a kind of furtive obsession with their phone can be a sign that they're getting online kind of, um, you know, messages. Yeah. Um, and a, a general feeling of dislike of themselves and others. That's a, that's a real sign. Do families also have a role in children's cyberbullying and what are their responsibilities for preventing it? Do families have a role in their children's own bullying? Uh, cyberbullying. Oh, cyberbullying. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. Yeah, families could have a big difference with that. An awful lot of people say, oh, just turn it off. Um, and it's it's kind of unempathic, funnily enough, to say that because if somebody, if there was a hundred people all talking about you online right now, mm-hmm. it's so difficult to just say, just turn it off, don't look at it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's easy to say, very difficult to do. And an awful lot of people feel a horrible sense of panic when they're not looking at it. And they feel more at ease when they're looking at it. So just to simplistically say, turn it off isn't. However, I do think an awful lot of very mad things happen online late at night. And it's very important that uh, parents have some sort of control over their children's phone at night, that the phones go to, you know, go to bed as such in the sitting room, not in the bedrooms and things like that. I think it's very important that parents have access to their children's phones so they can look at what's going on and they can look. People often think that their phones or their personal possessions, if they want to have personal kind of writing they can they can write in a file and lock it or they can write in a you know in a journal this idea if that messages between friends and stuff they're all screenshotable everything is public so it's almost like how a company would te- would treat a company phone the parents would teach would treat the child's phone mm-hmm. you know what i mean that don't put yeah. anything there that i i don't want to see you know what I mean? And yeah. I have access to your passwords. I'm quite hardline about that because I've seen so many awful cases of bullying. I think, yeah, especially with cyberbullying, it's become such a very big way of doing it. I mean, I think when I was younger, there was just it was just starting. So there was only really simple ways, like if you do it off Messenger, mm. you could do it off Facebook and that kind of thing. Now there are so many other tools so many other ways it's so simple and it's it's so complicated elaborate kind of (laughs) sending messages and you're like who sent who what message when like it's really (laughs) elaborate and very often sadly they've they found a lot of people it's their friend the anonymous bully has ended up being their friend there's a lot of really the anonymity that cyberspace gives us has really brought out the darkest side in humanity. And it's it's a real underbelly of humanity that I wish didn't exist, but does, you know. 
Yeah, no, exactly. So how would you talk to your kid, for example, on how to manage the cyber sort of cyber bullying and sort of the cyber net? More than anything, uh, bring in rules around the phone and make sure that uh, you, you have access. As soon as you see some sort of online bullying take place, you know, depending on the age, if there are 11 or 12 parents need to be involved, if they're older than that, certainly you need to block them and they need to be blocked. But also you need to take screenshots and be aware that, you know, sometimes you can go to the police with things like this. It's it's kind of a, a case of case by case, really, because they can be so weirdly specific to the person. But more than anything, it, you, you do have to know what's going on before you take action as a parent. And that means having a good look at the kind of landscape, because sometimes you can be very frenetic and go, this is what we're going to do. And I think you'd be better off watching it happen over a couple of days and then deciding this is all about Jack, for example, and all the rest are just sidekicks and we need to go to him. He He's the one, you know, that we need to block or that we need to. It's complicated. This isn't easy. When somebody's getting piled on in a cyberspace, you are you have the least amount of tools at your disposal. You really do. You're you're at mm-hmm. your weakest to fight back. It's very, very difficult. No, I, I definitely agree. So if a child is bullied in school badly, they might end up with some mental health issues. Um, then they grow up and abuse their own children. It sort of becomes a cycle. How do yeah. you think that the cycle can sort of be ended? When um, there's awareness that there is a cycle, for starters, <laughs> yeah. a self-awareness of what happened, an honesty and a courage to address it, and um, a, a willingness to kind of commit to the long process of recovery. Sadly, few among us have the, the courage or the, or the emotional honesty to do all that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, it, it, you know, when you, when you realize that you're in a cycle, the, the most important thing is you did down tools and stop the cycle. And it's really hard. It could be going, for all we know, it could be generations. It could be a thousand years of your family going through a cycle. Sometimes it can be, who knows? We don't know, but it could be hundreds of years, you know? Uh, It's it's insane just trying to understand that, just trying to even comprehend the fact that it can be like a generational thing that you're just having to find your way out of and each, each layer is sort of being each generation that's discovering it. So... It's it's a very complicated, complicated way of thinking about it. Yeah, it really is. So now we're going into the open mic session where you can get to talk about anything that you are passionate about, anything that you are working on and you'd love to share with the audience. And it can be pretty much any topic not related to the one we're talking about today. So I'd love to give you the floor. And I think we have a few minutes where you just get to share whatever you feel like um what i'd like to share is my new book that i've been working on for the last couple of years and it has been a labor of love and i've been incredibly busy for the last few years so (laughs) it really has been a labor of love because it's been very difficult to write this book and it's been really hard and i put my heart and soul into it it's called what your teen is trying to tell you 
and it's trying it's for it's for parents and it's hoping to help parents so that they connect with their distressed teenager and um i was a very distressed teenager i was frankly a demonic teenager i was a very very angry teenager and a very unhappy teenager and i remember those years and i've worked with an awful lot of teenagers in my clinical practice and i i really care about them and i, I kind of know how unbearably difficult it can be to be a distressed teenager and i think we underestimate how difficult it becomes i think as adults we honestly blank it out because it was so difficult we could it's like thinking on a holiday like did that really happen and it's like yeah no it did it was that bad and yes your emotions were that mad and you did do those crazy things that you really shouldn't have that were incredibly destructive yeah you did them and so this book i hope which will be out in march but you can pre-order it now so i'd love if anybody would um yeah, what it's trying to do, like I say, it's called What Your Teen Is Trying To Tell You. And what it's trying to do is help parents understand what's going on for the teenager so that they can help them. Because a lot of a lot of parents are just at a loss, just thinking, what is going on with them? What are they doing? And very often what the kid is doing makes sense for the kid. But it is very self-destructive and it is very, very uh, difficult on everybody. So I, I do think that while I had a terribly difficult time of it as a teenager, I think teenagers today, they, they seem to be really cripple, crippled. They seem to be really buckling under pressure. It seems to be social media and technology and video games and, you know, you know sexualization through pornography. It seems to be the impact of tech. Um, a massive, massive emphasis on their looks so that they're all so vain and so anxious around their looks. There's so many things going on for teenagers that I do think, I know it's a cliche, but I do think it's actually really, really, really hard to be a teenager today. I think they're not having very much fun. I think they're not having very much laughs. I think they're having a lot of listless, slightly bored techni technical fun, if you follow me, that kind of semi you know, like me and you here today, like it's it's certainly interesting talking to you. But if me and you were in the same room, we'd be having a much more heartful experience. It would be much yes. warmer, you know. Yeah. And leave it in a much more fulfilled way. Now, it's still very good, but we both know the lack. I think an awful lot of teenagers, that's how they're living. They're living with this half life. And it's I think they don't know what they're missing. And it's 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 frightening, you know. I I really feel yeah. for them. No, I think I think you're right. Teenagers definitely have a lot worse because I think there's so much of a a need for technology to be in their life, a need to be to yeah. see what everyone's up to, and also to there's a competitive need to sort of beat another person. Oh, if your pictures are have more likes, oh my, my pictures have got to have more likes, I and know. that is that is a scary way to live even for like even for me I study media I'm in social media I studied it pretty much the last three years and I know the in-depth of the need of likes and things like that but for that to just be what high schoolers have to deal with and it's not something that they're ever wanting to pursue in their life it's just for fun and then this is how stressed out they are just for fun 
and it is it is scary to Jordan. see yeah exactly it's just everything is like if you it doesn't happen if you're not posting it it doesn't happen if you're not sharing it around with other people and it's just that's why so many people they say they talk about digital detox far too much now as well as well as something that I've realized oh I need to walk away from my phone for far for two weeks or so and I'm just like are you on it like that much I'm mm -hmm. like I'm I'm starting to get really bad, especially after lockdown, when it comes to me constantly needing to be on my phone now. But a couple of years ago, I really wasn't because I, I barely, I didn't have a phone until I was probably 18. And that was only like just for emergencies because um, yeah. I had no need for it. And it's so interesting. I had, I went through whole of high school not having a phone and everyone looked at me strangely. I'm just like, I don't, I don't need it. I have no need for like Instagram and I, all that. I, I obviously didn't have a phone because uh, I'm older than you, but like I remember I didn't have a phone. Not well, I had a phone, but I did have a smartphone when I was having babies, 2007 and 2009. And had I had a smartphone, God bless those poor little kids. I would have been so distracted. <laughs> They're <laughs> lucky. They're lucky that I didn't get one. So for me to go online, I had to go on the computer. So I went on in a very business way. I just didn't go on. And it was I was a late adapter. So it was well, well late before I got into social media and stuff. But had had I, I just think I would have been, you know, constantly all those boring baby years, which were very boring. I just think I would have missed them because I would have yeah. been on the phone the whole time. Yeah, I think like parents now, especially like you see a lot of their kids playing on the playground and they're just sitting on the park bench oh, yeah. on the phone. Yeah. Like my mom and I, we stare at them and we're like, yeah, we're lucky we didn't have that growing up. Like my mom yeah. had the flip phone and that was like half the time her battery died. So and, she was and you know, you know those benches in the playground. I looked into that. They were created because parents are often very lonely in the baby years. And the idea was to socialize with other parents in the playground. That's why they were created. Not for everybody to scroll on their phones. It's just, it's so interesting to me, just that idea of like, when I was a kid, I was so lucky I had my mom actually playing on the swings with me and sliding down the slide and all that stuff. Now it's like, it's so different. Now parents are just... I'm I'm gonna feel sorry for my kids because they everyone knows I'm gonna be on my phone constantly now, and oh, we don't know there might be a backlash. I don't know. Oh, hopefully, I'll yeah. hopefully I throw my phone in the lake by then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we've not changed. We've reached saturation one day. Oh, hopefully, I hope we don't. There's a need for no phones soon. So imagine. Um, I really want to thank you so much, Stella, for coming on today and sort of talking about a lot of in-depth, I think a lot of not just like parent um, bullying, we talked about a whole other different types of topics as well. And it was really interesting to get to talk to you. That was a really good conversation. Thanks for having me. Um, if there's a way that audiences would like to get into contact with you, um, is there a place that they are able to? Well, ironically enough, I am... <laughs> easily found online I'm Stella Valley on Twitter or Stella Valley Psychotherapist on Facebook or TikTok or Instagram I'm everywhere 
<laughs> okay, so like they can message you pretty much in any platform <laughs> <Usually>. now. <laughs> Anytime, and I'm always on it. Uh, no matter how much we're constantly disdaining social media, we're still always on it for some reason. I know. It's just the heroine of our, of our era. Exactly. It's our, it's our missed youth now for some reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is really, isn't it? Um, so thank you so much for joining me today. And I hope that a lot of people will be a lot more enlightened and I'm really looking forward to seeing that book come out. Um, hopefully I will get a chance to see it and I'll definitely look deeper into it. I'll definitely have it linked below as well. Um, I think there is a link that you have sent us, so I will send that down in the description so audiences can get to it a little bit easier. Wow. So, uh, yeah, (laughs) it's good. Uh, thanks so much for listening guys and please follow on social media and yes as um as you guys can see that we are constantly on there now as well um we are pretty much on every platform which is which as much as i'm sort of hating social media i'm on it as well so yeah reach me reach us at any platform so yeah thank you so much for listening guys and i hope to see you in the next episode you've been listening to raising parents the parenting science insights podcast Produced by the Parenting Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 Life Management Perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, and subscribe to our channel so that other people can find it and we can continue to provide quality content. More of our work can be found on our website at pa.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent, and thanks for tuning in.